I want to begin with verse 10 of the little epistle of Jude. Um, today, we are going to get close to finishing the epistle of Jude. I'm not sure we'll get it all done, but we'll get close. Um, the primary thesis of the book is in verse 3, contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. Remember that? That's kind of the most important verse to kind of keep in your mind. Because what, and what Jude does is he shows how the false teachers whom he is really alerting and warning and, and challenging this, this uh, group of churches to whom he's writing his little letter to be aware, to be sensitive, to be alert, uh, be on guard. Uh, And we looked at their two primary pillars of false teaching. They prostitute the grace of God, which leads to doing whatever you want, sensuality, etc., and and their distortion of uh, who Jesus is. That is always, always the mark of false teaching. They make major errors on Jesus, and they prostitute or distort or pervert the grace of God in one way or another. Now, he is, I'm not going to go through any more. I ought to do much more summarizing than I need to do. But in verse 8 and 9, and we did that last week, and again, I'm not going to go through all that again, but he helps us to understand, helps his early readers to understand what was the basis and characteristics of their teaching. And uh, we looked at that in quite a bit of detail, and the most important dimension of it is rejecting the authority of God. Now, verse 10 is is one of those verses, and I, I hope you will not misunderstand how I'm saying this. In the original language, it's much more powerful <laughs> how it's being presented. When we try to bring it into English, it kind of loses some of its punch. I hope I didn't um, cause you to, to misunderstand the point I'm making, because what I've tried to do on the board here is really um, reemphasize the punch of the original. <laughs> and it's really a play off of the word understand. And that's why I circled the word, and uh, it's in two, and I put it into two columns. So I want to read it, and we're going to go back and take it apart. But these people, now that is the same phrase we saw in verse 8, these people. You'll see in verse 9, these, demonstrative pronoun referring to these people, though three times he addresses them in this broad general category. But these people blaspheme all they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. So what Jude is doing here, and that's what I've tried to do on the board, is he keys in twice on that word understand. That term, which is used twice in this verse, is the key to unlocking what he's saying. So the first is a negative, they do not understand, And the second is a positive, what they understand, but they understand instinctively, or they they understand and act instinctively. So let me let me take this apart with you. So he's trying to say what causes them to do what they do? What what explains what what they're doing and what they're teaching, which is so wrong? Well, first of all, they do not understand. And based on everything that he's been talking about in this epistle, they don't understand basic biblical doctrine. What would that involve? And I don't want to make a long list. I'm not trying to you know, elaborate on this in any great detail. But what would that involve? Deity, basic biblical doctrine. Deity of Christ, grace. Yeah, there you go. Those, those two things that we saw right at the beginning of the little book. A proper understanding of grace and a proper understanding of who Jesus is. So just take those two. They don't understand those, and so what do they do? They blaspheme it. They blaspheme what they don't understand. You see, what Jude is saying is, and this is really important, um, it isn't so much that they don't understand it intellectually. It's 
What they understand intellectually, they refuse to embrace and welcome and accept as true. You follow me? So it isn't so much they can't, I mean, you can intellectually understand the deity of Christ. But do you accept it? Do you welcome it? Do you embrace it as true? That's what they're not doing. And so they blaspheme all the values and virtues and standards that are dear to our God, that are based on his just the twin pillars of this little epistle, a proper understanding of God's grace and a proper understanding of who Jesus is. And then what explains what they do? They understand instinctively. They understand and act and follow and adhere to their feelings and their desire. And Jude says, just like animals. You see what he's doing? What they refuse to embrace and welcome, the basic doctrines of God's truth, instead, they embrace and welcome and act instinctively like an animal who follows his, fe- his feelings and desires and just acts instinctively. An animal doesn't think the con- through the consequences long-term of their choices. I mean, you would agree with that, don't you? I mean, an animal doesn't sit down and do a strategic plan for their life. I'm being a little bit facetious here, but you understand? They just act. We had, you know, when our kids were growing up and even after they left, we had two dogs in our house over the years, about 25 years. We don't have a dog anymore. But, and, you know, you observe a dog. I mean, they're a wonderful animal. They're lots of fun. But they don't. They just act instinctively and live instinctively. You can train them where to go to the bathroom because instinctively they don't go to the bathroom the way you want them to go to the bathroom. you got to train them. Again, I'm being very facetious and ridiculous. What Jude is saying is, instead of understanding, welcoming, and embracing, and accepting the truth of God, they slander it. And so what they do is what they understand instinctively, their feelings and their desires. It explains why they do what they do. Therefore, he says, you know, the three dots are therefore. You know that from geometry. Remember that? Therefore, they'll be destroyed. That's what he says. They are destroyed by all they do. In other words, if you and so many people do that, basically they live like an animal. They have an instinctive desire, just do it. Go with your desire. Do what is, do what is pleasing and happy to you. Do what is fulfilling to you. I mean, just listen sometimes to marketing of products to millennials. That's exactly what they're saying. Whatever you want to do, just do it. What they're really, it's, it's, it's an amazing, I mean, I've thought about this a lot. It's, it's an amazing message to be sending to human beings. It's almost like saying, you have an intuitive, instinctive desire, do it. There are no boundaries to life. Just do it. And that's, you know, Nike used to have that as a slogan, uh, uh, for a number of years, uh, Burger King, their major theme was break the rules. I mean, what in the world it has to do with eating a hamburger? I don't know, but break the rules. J- Jude is saying, it's essentially the same thing. You live your life, break the rules. There are no boundaries. There are no lines on the tennis court. Have it your way. Yeah, have it your I mean, it's just over and over again. All the marketing slogans that, that promote products and so on are really playing to that. And you see, what they don't do and what Jude does is this is a life of self-destructive behavior. You will be destroyed by this. Now, you can say God will destroy you in the last judgment, great wine, sort of judgment, yes, but you can also say that kind of, that kind of a metric by which you're going to live your life will be very self-destructive. Ultimately, Fundamentally, in terms of eternity, but even within time, it is a life that will ultimately self-destruct. So I I find verse 10 an incredibly insightful verse. 
It's, it's an incredibly insightful verse. What they don't understand, what they refuse to embrace as true, they slander. What they embrace is the instinctive behavior, like animals, of how they live their life. And that's the path to destruction. I, again, I, I'm done with the verse unless you have any questions or comments about it, but I, I believe it is uh, one of the more insightful verses of this little epistle. It's a remarkable summary that I don't, just from the few comments we've made here, I don't have any difficulty understanding what he's saying. And I see this all around the culture in which we live. It's, it's very indicative of the environment that I live in the last year, strong leaders. Mm. If they're ignorant to a situation, they do rebuke it. They do put it down. Mm. They, they dismiss it. Mm. And that's kind of what, where I'm seeing kind of going here. Absolutely. No, that's, that's absolutely. That's right. Now, where does this go then from Jude's perspective? In verse 11, he reaches this conclusion. Woe to them. Now, I'm sure you've seen that word before. Woe is a word of judgment throughout the Bible. In the Old Testament, it's the New Testament. Jesus uses that word many times uh, in, in the Gospel of Matthew. comes to my mind when he's speaking of the Pharisees. Woe to you Pharisees, hypocrites. And he makes a devaluation of that. But he explains the woe. He explains the declaration of ultimate judgment. And he uses three Old Testament examples. For they've walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. (laughs) Now, there are three Old Testament examples. And in each one of those Old Testament examples, I'm rather certain you're familiar with who Cain is. That's Abel's brother. Cain kills Abel. Remember all that? That's in Genesis. Years, uh, a number of months ago, we studied that. And so what motivated King? Well, Jude says, and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain. So here, ah, personal, self-centered gain. Selfish. It's like a false idol. It is like a false idol. That's exactly right. It can become that. So personal, selfish, self-indulgent, self-centered gain at any cost. Balaam, now again, you have to kind of have a good sense of the Old Testament. That's Numbers 22. The Amalekite Balak invites Balaam to curse Israel. And he pays him a lot of money for that. You remember what happened to Balaam? He ends up actually blessing Israel because God's in control of the situation. But Balaam, Balaam is motivated by personal gain. And then Korah, now that's not probably as familiar, that's from number 16. Korah led a rebellion against Moses when they were in the wilderness. And that rebellion, like all rebellions ultimately against God, did not succeed. And Korah and all of his followers are killed. And so all, and it's it's really, it's, it's interesting that Jude uses these three examples from the Old Testament of individuals who followed bodily feelings and desires like animals, and they were destroyed. Cain, Balaam, Korah, and all of his his rebels that rebelled against Moses' authority. Instead of being motivated by a clear understanding and embracing and accepting of the doctrine of who God is and his values and virtues and standards, his grace, etc. Slander that, reject that, and follow, like an animal, bodily instincts, feelings, and desires. And one of those basic instincts is selfishness, self-centered living. I mean, a cat is not an other-centered animal. A cat does not think of other people. I don't know if you've ever had a cat or know what a cat... I mean, they're, they're very independent. They're on their own, and you're sort of 
an afterthought in their life. If they want to come and see you and rub against your leg and you come home, that's fine. But 99% of the time, they will not do that, at least most cats I'm aware of. I'm using that as a ridiculous example. But an animal, an animal is a selfish, self-centered, instinctive, desire-oriented, feeling-oriented. Whenever I want to do whatever I want to do, I do it because I'm an animal. But yet they're with no excuse, ultimately, where he says every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. You can live in the moment or you can live in the truth. There's a great separation between those that one is for you, the moment, the other is for the Lord, for the long life that we live. It's not like there isn't rewards. Of course. I mean, there's spiritual rewards and not just, like you mentioned probably months ago, a couple years maybe now, you said this gentleman that you had met was very well off. He said, came to, to a conclusion that he had been leaning his oh, ladder against the wrong wall no. against the wrong wall. Yeah, yeah. and uh, I don't know if that led to conversion or yeah it did yeah. oh praise God yeah. for that um, he, he reached that conclusion after he came to faith but he yeah he lost his wife lost, lost his two him. girls yeah it was a mess well, I mean again you go, you go back to this key point they slander what they don't understand slander blasphemes rebuke, make fun of, um, think of all kinds of verbs. And that that means I reject or don't want to see or don't want to include or don't want to factor in to anything I do an eternal dimension to life. I'm just going to live for the moment. Marketing, it's a general statement because there are Christians that are in marketing, but Marketing people and marketing products do not want you to think of eternity. They want you to think of now. I need this now. And you act instinctively and go out and buy it. Whether it's a Reese's peanut butter cup, but that has eternal significance because we're going to eat these in heaven. That's in the Bible. How about convertible cars? Um, Probably. So is he talking here about individuals or those in leadership positions or both? Or it almost seems the examples he here uses here are those who are somehow leading or misleading people. I, I have to conclude. That's a great question. It is both and. I, I mean, I do. I think it's both and. But. The, the primary focus are these false teachers that are inching their way into the church. And so, Jim, it seems as if they would have had some position of authority or some role that gave them that forum to teach these false doctrines or false teachings and so on. So, But I think it's, it's both, both and in terms of, of choosing how you're going to live your life. But as you know, if you're a leader, your influence on people is far greater than if you're just singularly on your own living in a cabin somewhere. And so uh, both of those, I think, apply, though. I mean, I don't know if you're comfortable doing this, but are there corollaries today that you could point to? or You're not comfortable, that's fine. <laughs> Uh, I could choose the political realm, but I would quickly alienate all of you and you would leave. Um, I, you know, I, I, Jim, I don't know if I want to. I think in I think in general, w- without identifying individuals or or very specific individuals as examples, I think generally all of us can understand exactly what Jude is doing in verse 10. People do not have any difficulty understanding the gospel message. 
that's, that's not an intellectual issue. The gospel is there was a man who claimed to be the Messiah and also demonstrated that he was God in the flesh. And he went to a cross and died for sin and was resurrected in power, paying the penalty for sin and conquering that penalty, death. That's not hard to understand that. I mean, that's an historic event. You know, whether you believe that or not, is it, it's, it's not hard to intellectually understand that. The gospel is not hard to understand. It's, I mean, it's not like, I mean, to understand the Quran and understand Allah is much more difficult than understanding the simple message of the gospel. That's not the issue. The issue of the gospel is not do I understand it, but do I believe it? Do I embrace it? Do I welcome it? Do I accept it? You know what I mean? And that's, that's the issue. And so Jude is saying what they don't, it, 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 when he that word, when he uses the word understand, it doesn't mean intellectually. They don't understand it. I mean, intellectually, you know, I, they understand that the words, they just don't accept it. And so instead of accepting it, they slander it. They blaspheme it. I mean, that's, our culture today is saying, I don't want to live according to the standards God has so clearly laid down, that there are boundaries in life. And those boundaries are really for our good. Well, I don't want to do that. I'm my own being. I'm a captain of my ship. I do it my way. I'm, I'm autonomous, you know, all of that. So therefore, don't you set boundaries. And the boundaries that I preach and teach are not my boundaries that I made up. They come from God's word, the creator, the redeemer. And so he's saying to you, (laughs) I am telling you this is the best way to live. And I give you all the power and all the enablement through the finished work of my son, through the Holy Spirit, to live this way. But if you choose not to, then you must accept the consequences of what you're choosing to do. As C.S. Lewis says in The Great Divorce, God does not force people to love him. But God gives you every, every opportunity and every enablement to do that. And what hell is, and that's an ugly word, people don't like to use it today, but hell is in eternity simply the trajectory of what you are choosing now. You live your entire life thumbing your nose at God. I do not want to live the way you want me to live. I do not accept your gracious gift of Jesus. I don't accept that. And every day you choose, I don't accept it, I reject it. And every day you keep rejecting it, you reject God. And God is saying there is an eternal consequence to the choices you're making now. And you either accept that or you reject it. And as Lewis says in that wonderful book, hell is the greatest monument to human freedom and autonomy there is. Because it's what people have chosen. God did not force them to do that. God made it available to them over and over. Every single day his grace is screaming at them, so to speak. My goodness. I just preached for about five minutes, so I'll stop it, Fred. Praise God. Amen. It's certainly an example of this that Jude is talking about. It's the Pharisees. Mm. Because they Perfect example. they had the Torah, they had all the information, mm-hmm. and they had the man standing there in front of them, and they refused. Who fulfilled everything, in the book. what they had studied and memorized, said he was going to do. Flat refused. Yeah, it's just it's it's amazing. Um, so, now look at the remaining part here, verse twelve, um, and into the next verse. Jude uses a, a series of their metaphors, really, and he what he does is he just okay. Here are these false teachers. Here's we've already reviewed what they believe. We now understand why they reject and how they live. They live instinctively, instinctively like animals, etc. He says, this is, this is their methodology. They're hidden reefs at your love feasts 
as they feast with you without fear. Now, first of all, the the hidden reefs. I mean, can you understand a hidden reef? You know, do you know enough about sailing or boating? You know, and that's dangerous. If you strike a reef in a wooden boat, like in the ancient world, that could be very destructive. And all Jude is saying is they're hidden reefs at your love feasts. Now, let me comment on that if I could real quickly. A love feast, um, it's in, in Greek, it's actually agape, an agape feast. What that means is in the ancient uh, church, in the very early church, first century, actually almost the first 200 years of the church, what they would do is they would gather together in houses. Remember, they didn't have buildings. There weren't buildings like you know churches around Omaha that you can think of in the corner of streets, etc. Um, they would gather in people's homes, house churches. Big churches didn't come about until the 300s. And you would spend most of the day together. And there would be a time of significant reading of God's word because nobody had a copy of God's word. It was all hand copied. So you, it would be read, then you would do some singing, and there would be some teaching and preaching. And then you would have a meal together, and at the end of the meal, you would share the Lord's table. Now, the meal was like a, a Baptist potluck supper. Now, those of you who come from a Roman Catholic tradition, you don't even know what I'm talking about. But if any of you come from a Baptist, you know, but Baptists love to eat. And they always had these meals, and everybody brings a little bit to, and, and shares their food together, and, uh, you know. And not only Baptists, but that's just a very typical thing. Well, in the ancient church, this is what they, every Sunday, this is what they did. And you'd share the meal together, and you bring, you bring you know, food and share it and so on. And at the end of that meal, you would have the Lord's table together. There'd be a little break, and you'd go back and have some more reading of Scripture, another message, and you'd leave. So what's Jude saying? Like hidden reefs. They're very involved in your love feast, the agape meal, your worship time together. They're there. They're in the center of what you're doing. Deceptive, sly, misrepresenting what they really believe and teach, but they're there. James is not talking about people, or Jude is not talking about people outside the church that are threatening you. He's talking about people inside the early church that were teaching false doctrine. He says they're shepherds feeding themselves. That's a contradiction. I mean, a shepherd, by definition, is to take care of and guide and make sure there's adequate shelter and food for the dumbest animals God ever created. And I'm sure you know a sheep, a sheep is about the dumbest animal there ever is in terms of herding. And it's just a contradiction. Shepherds feeding themselves because a shepherd is to take care of you. And the word for pastor in the Greek is the word for shepherd. I'm a pastor on my, on my, in my church. I'm a part-time pastor at my church. One of my roles is to guide and help and nurture and lead people along through my teaching, through my pastoral counseling, through my mentoring of men and so on. It's like a shepherd. And to feed myself is a contradiction of terms. That's not what I'm supposed to do. That's what they're doing. Waterless clouds. I love that. Waterless clouds swept by the wind. Well, you know, today we don't have any clouds because it's a typical hot, hot summer day. But, you know, waterless clouds, they're not any benefit. You like clouds because ultimately they're going to bring rain and the good things that nurture the... Not these guys. They're fruitless trees and laid on them, twice dead, uprooted. <laughs> You know, there isn't much promise to a fruitless tree in late autumn, twice dead. I mean, it's gone through the cycle. Spring loses its leaves. That, you know, that's all it means by that. Wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame. I don't think you have any trouble understanding that. And then wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. <clears throat> Is there a parallel between that dumbly dead and those who are dead to, to Christ who will die physically and then will be cast away? Um, 
to eternity separated from God? Or do you see that something else? Possibly. Possibly, yeah. I mean, you know, a metaphor, you can work out all of its figurative meanings. So that certainly would fit here, Fred. I don't know if that's his primary meaning, but it certainly would fit. These aren't just confused people who are trying to find a way. There's an intentionality. Absolutely. And that's part of what this is all about. There is an intention, a willful, uh, deceptive, duplicitous nature to these people. They know what they're doing. So, yeah, this isn't just a bunch of confused people kind of wandering. No, 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 no. They're really... And, and these five metaphors that he uses demonstrate, were to demonstrate to the people who were get, first getting this letter, these are really dangerous people. These are really dangerous people. To beware. That's what he's been warning throughout the epistle. Beware of them. Now, my opinion is, in the 21st century church in North America, there are an awful lot of people like this right now. Another term might be chicanery. Chicanery would fit very much so. Very much so. Make the case that there are a lot of people of every uh, religious stripe in North America that are doing perhaps a good reason for many of them still believing in spirituality would never call themselves Christian because they, even if they were raised Christian they, they've been taught all their lives that this is superstition this is something other than the truth and so yes they, and I'm not saying that they're innocent because they've been deceived but there's you don't have to be Christian to be in this boat. Yeah, there's, a, there's another, another twist to this because uh, sometime in the past, I think you mentioned pastors that refuse to address a particular issue. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's commission and there's omission in this, in this group of the deceivers. That's a good comment. That's right. That's right. If you refuse to address something that you know yep. needs to be addressed, yep. then you're, you're playing in, into that. Well, and I, it may have been when we were dealing with prophetic scripture, 26% of the Bible is prophecy. And if you choose as a pastor to never teach the prophetic truth of scripture, there's 26% of the Bible you're choosing not to deal with, which is not teaching, in the words of Paul, the whole counsel of God. You're not doing it. And that's um, it is difficult. It is somewhat controversial, depending on what you're particularly addressing in that area. But um, see, and the reason this is important to me, and one of the reasons I like this epistle, is the warnings that he is giving here are almost universal warnings at any point in the history of the church, which is now basically 2,000 years. The specifics of what he was talking about here don't exactly apply because they were a little bit different, a little more of a Gnostic, things like that. But the point is, I mean, um, let me use an example if I could. In the early 20th century, with a Presbyterian leader uh, named J. Gresham Machen, he was a brilliant scholar. He's one of the most significant Greek scholars of the early 20th century. He's in the Presbyterian church. But what he was doing was he was challenging those in Presbyterian church leadership that were denying the deity of Christ denying some of the resurrection, uh, teaching of the resurrection. And, and Machen said, he wrote a book in 1921 called Christianity and Liberalism. And the thesis of the book is, those who deny the deity of Jesus, deny his resurrection, deny his second coming, they have every right to teach that. But stop calling themselves Christians because they're no longer Christians. Call yourself something else. But don't take the name of Christ because you are denying everything he stood for. What was his name? J. Gresham Machen, M-A-C-H-E-N. 
If you Google it or you go on Amazon, that book, Christianity and Liberalism, has been in print since it was published in 1921. So it's a a tremendous book because it's like you're reading something that you just heard in a pulpit sermon at some theological liberal church yesterday (laughs) or Sunday yesterday. I told you about this a couple years ago now. It's more like 11, 12 years ago in a major denominational church in this city. On Easter Sunday, a man stood up. He was the pastor of that church and said, we are here to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus in our hearts. Because we all know in this day and age, he didn't literally come back to life. He wasn't literally resurrected. We no longer believe that. But we celebrate his resurrection in our hearts. I had a tape of that. and I heard it. If I was going to that church, I'd have gotten up and left. I, if, that's, if that's what you really believe, why even bother coming to church? I mean, the resurrection in your heart, what in the world does that mean? You're trying to explain the, the Easter Sunday. You sing all the, up from the grave, the great hymns of the church. And then your pastor stands up and says, in this day and age, we no longer believe that. What we celebrate is the resurrection of Jesus. This is what the early church wanted to believe about Jesus. It really wasn't historically true, but that's what they, so we celebrate this in our heart. And I mean, I did just said, well, if that's what you believe, I'm not a Christian. I'm not going to come back to church. I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow I die because you just deny the most powerful part of the Christian message. There's no resurrection. There's no resurrection. Then, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, then we're dead in our sins. Eat, drink, and be merry. It doesn't matter if there's no resurrection. And and I am preaching. But if there's no resurrection, there's no Christianity. There isn't. Christianity totally rises and falls on what happened on Sunday morning. And if that didn't happen, don't come to this Bible study. Because I don't have anything to say. If that were not so, why was there such an effort to insist that the body was stolen and the look for other explanations. Well, yeah, I mean, I have a whole series of messages. There are about six different attempts to explain what happened. And every one of those attempts to explain it don't fit with the evidence. It's a ridic- some of the, are the most ridiculous hypotheses. That Jesus just feigned his death. He really wasn't dead. I mean, just things like that. But again, the main point is if the resurrection didn't happen, then Christianity is a lie. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. If that didn't happen, it's a lie. Everything we teach is a lie. Don't believe anything we have to say if the resurrection didn't happen. But if it did, then everything that God is saying in his word, you need to pay attention to. Because everything was leading to that event. His death, burial, and resurrection. Well, and that's what Jude is dealing with. Whatever the specifics that these false teachers, it had something to do with Jesus, something that they were teaching that was false and wrong and distorted and perverted. And that's why you always, always, always will know false teaching if what they're saying about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and his nature is wrong. Don't listen to them. They don't have anything to say to you. I don't mean to be so dogmatic, but that's the truth. So we have this this watershed of that which is spiritual and that which is flesh. And we will choose how we will live. Mm-hmm. Either in the spirit of truth or in the flesh of self-indulgence. That's right. That's right. Let's look at how Jude concludes, as I thought I'd finish this today. What uh, uh, delusions of grandeur or something I got. Verse 14. Verse 14 through verse 16, Jude focuses on the destiny of these false teachers. And that pretty much follows your, your outline. It was also about these, and that, that demonstrative pronoun, these, takes you back to verse 8, verse 10, and verse 12. It's the same word. These, Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment and on all, to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against them. 
And so there are two purpose clauses, uh, really the phrases, two purpose phrases in verse 15. The Lord is coming with his holy ones. That's in all, that's Revelation 19, all the other passages about it. To do two, two things, what? To execute judgment and to convict the ungodly. This is referring to the great white throne judgment in Revelation chapter 20. That's what it's referring to. That there is coming a day of accountability for these false teachers. Now what what Jude is doing is he's fast-forwarding to the end of historical time, the great white throne judgment, when God will call all of these false teachers to account. And I mean, it's, it's, it's an amazing summary in just one verse of major portions of the Old Testament prophets. I'm thinking of Isaiah and Jeremiah, as well as like Revelation 19, Revelation 20. It's just a, it's a one-verse summary of that, that the Lord is coming back. And one of the things he's going to do is execute judgment and convict. And that's a, that's a reference to the great white throne judgment. If you, you go to Revelation 20, the books will be opened. And people are going to have, this isn't for you. And if we put our faith in Christ, we're not going to be at the great white throne judgment. That's not for us. Put your faith in Christ. Christ took care of your sin. It's settled. It's all done. These are the people who have rejected the grace of God. And so it's just, it's very clear what he's saying from God's perspective. There's coming a time when they'll have to give an account. And to convict all the ungodly, convict, that's a, uh, um, a legal term. Evidence will be presented. Judgment will be meted out. And that's what the book, the Bible, is many places in the scriptures. The books will be opened. The evidence will be presented. And the judge will make his declaration. And all, all Jude does in verse 15 is again summarizes. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires, loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism, and again, to gain advantage, which we had early read uh, here today in, in our class. So all Jude is doing in verse 16 is this is the kind of evidence that will be presented as, as the Lord makes his, uh, his, uh, his, his judgment. All right, now, uh, well, we are doing well. It is, we still have 15 minutes. Maybe we will get this almost all done. Any questions? What's that? <laughs> all right, everybody with me? Understand what's going on? Okay. Now, look at verse 17. The first word, I'm sure this is in all your translation, is but. It's a contrast. But you. To whom is he addressing? The you, it's plural. The, the, the churches whom he's writing to, the believers, those who have accepted the grace of God, those who have not rejected the doctrine, but have embraced it and welcomed it. Remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. So what's he saying? This should not be a surprise to you. He doesn't say the Old Testament prophet. He says the apostles of Jesus. Who? Look at Paul in Acts chapter 20. Look at Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 4. In 2 Timothy chapter 3. All three of those passages, Acts 20, uh, 1 Timothy 4, and 2 Timothy 3, Paul says, in the last days, this is what you should expect. What does that mean, in the last time, in the last days? You see from God's perspective, from God's perspective, that the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus completed and the Spirit has come, what's the next event on God's program? The return of his Son. So these are the last days. Now these last days have gone on for almost 2,000 years. 
But from God's perspective, these are the last days. All of the Old Testament prophecies about the coming of the Messiah and all that he was going to accomplish have been done. It's completed. Now we're waiting for the prophecies about his second coming. There's nothing else that needs to be done. There are no other events from God's perspective of what needs to be accomplished in terms of his redemptive program. These are the last days. And Paul says, and, and that's all Jude's doing here, be on the alert. One of the greatest challenges will be false teaching. Did you notice in verse 19, worldly people devoid of the spirit? That's how the ESV translates that. Did you notice that? If they're devoid of the spirit, he that had, Paul says in first in Romans chapter 8, verse 9, he that has Christ has the spirit. So if they don't have the spirit, they don't have Christ. But you, beloved. Now, again, this is one of the most important ways in which the early church had to deal with false teachers. One of the most important ways for you and me to deal with false teachers. Build yourselves up. New. In your most holy faith. Now we've talked about this before. The word faith means two things in the New Testament. Either the faith as a verb where you put your faith in Christ and become a new creature in Christ, or faith as a noun, that body of belief, what we believe, which one is used here? The second, building yourselves up. So how do you edify and build yourself up in the holy faith? Studying, you know, I'm, this is the word of God copied on it. I have much notes on it, but it's through the word of God. I mean, I... I'm doing a series in my church right now on the church. My lead pastor wanted me to teach, preach this, and I just did on this past Sunday part one of the mission and purpose of the church. And my first, uh, there are five points I had. The first point is to bring glory to God. The second is to teach. Teach and preach the truth. That is all over the New Testament. And it is the, because it is one of the major themes of the New Testament the most pernicious threat to the church is false teaching. And how do you counter false teaching? By knowing what the truth is. If you don't know what the truth is, you're not going to be ready, you're not going to be built up, you're not going to be able to defend what is true. That Remember the thesis of the book of Jude, contend for the faith once delivered to the saint, verse 3. So to contend for the faith means you must know what the Christian faith is, which means you must know basic doctrine, which is the main reason you come to this class, from my perspective. That may not be how you're seeing it, but I, 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 I teach these kinds of classes to go verse by verse through the books of the Bible so that you are built up and equipped. It's not just to fill your mind with lots of historical facts, but it is to equip you because there is a lot of error out there. And the only way you can know error and combat error is if you know what the truth is. Jesus said in his high priestly prayer in John 17, your word is truth, Father. David in Psalm 119 twice said, O Lord, your word is truth. So if we want to know truth, we need to know Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and we need to know his word. And so it's a consistent message in the New Testament. You must know the basic doctrines of the faith. If you don't, through God's word, you're not going to be prepared. As you go back to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 through 19, you put on the whole armor of God. There's one offensive weapon there. Remember what it is? The sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. That's what Paul said. So if you don't, you can have the shield of faith, you can have the helmet of righteousness, breastplate of righteousness, helmet of truth, and all that, but if you don't have the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, you're not completely equipped. I'm saying all that because this message is consistent throughout the New Testament. So it's, it's, so it's first edifying, building yourself up through the faith. 
what you believe, the word of God. And then praying in the Holy Spirit or praying with or praying in. It's, it's hard to get a really great translation, but praying in, in the Holy Spirit. Praying, listen, this is not, there's nothing super mystically spiritual about this. It's just praying consistently in dependence on the Spirit. I mean, it isn't, I mean, the Pentecostals sometimes have made a lot of this. I don't think, I don't think we need to make anything big about it. It's just, listen, your prayer life is a communication with the Lord. Rosalind Rinker defines prayer as a dialogue between two people who love one another. And praying is conversation with God. And who indwells you? The Holy Spirit, who's motivating and enabling And you're praying in the name of Jesus by the Holy Spirit to the Father, as someone once said. That's all Jude is saying here. So first, it's equipping yourself, edifying yourself, building yourself up through the faith, the Christian faith, the Word of God, but also in that wonderful dependency on the Lord called prayer. I know I've talked about this a lot in this class over the years. Praying is something that's not just what you do in the morning when you have breakfast and you maybe go through a prayer list or something like that. Very important to do that if that's part of your life. But it's also just a constant 24-7 conversation with the Lord. Amen. It really is. That's, that's what the, the Lord delights in that. That's what he wants. And that's all James and Jude is saying here. So it's the word of God, it's praying, and then keep yourselves in the love of God. But Fred has a question. I, I was just thinking about you know being ready to pray at any time. Pray you. without ceasing. Yeah, and and sometimes you know it, it really blesses people as you're led by, as you say, by the Holy Spirit, just to encourage them. Absolutely. And our salvation isn't unto ourselves; it's so that we can go forth as well. And share the gospel, answer questions that people are sincerely seeking answers for, mm-hmm. to perhaps explain some of the things to them so that they might better understand and then maybe come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Absolutely. Absolutely. We're going to study in uh, the epistle of Peter coming up. He has a wonderful challenge. Um, he, he says, always be ready. To give a defense of the faith that was in you. And that word is an apologia, a defense of, of what you believe. Because that, God will use that in the life. Always be ready to do that. Are you always ready? You know, Roman Manus talks about the uh, divine appointments that God has in our lives. You know, and those occur in my life almost every day. You know, it's something that's not on my schedule, but it's on the Lord's schedule. So you have building yourselves up in the most holy faith, praying in the Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Doesn't that sound spiritual? You just want to say, amen. What does it mean? When Jesus was asked the question, what's the greatest commandment? Members respond, love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself. Love has a vertical, and it has a horizontal dimension to it. That's what he's talking about here. So it's, you're equipped, you're built up through the word of God, keeping the faith. You're energized and enabled through your prayer life, in, by, and with the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. And that's manifested in the love you have for God and for people. I don't know if I've ever told you this, but, you know, one of the really fascinating things to study in the first 200 years in the history of the church is how Rome responded to the church. By Rome, I mean the empire. That's what I'm talking about. And Israel, at first, Rome just ignored the church. 
Ah, a little subset of those crazy Jewish people in the Eastern Mediterranean. But then it kept growing. Well, it isn't a subset. we got to pay attention to them. And, I mean, then eventually they would start suppressing it, and then they'd start persecuting it, then they'd start killing the Christians. But no matter what they did, it kept spreading. Roman historian in the, uh, oh, near the end of the second century wrote this. I am amazed at how they love one another. And I've often thought, would an historian writing about the North American church in 2017 make that observation? And a couple pages later, later he says, they are turning the world upside down. Not by military, not by strength, not by politics, not by mean-spirited language, but by their love. And so that's what Jude is talking about. And it's, it's, it's an amazing challenge to us. But what, what causes you? What causes you to want to do that? Look at the rest of verse 21. Waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. What's he talking about? It's so interesting how Jude puts this. The mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. What's he talking about? His return. What are we waiting for? What are you waiting for? The return of Jesus. He said in John 14, he made a promise. I'm coming back for you. I'm going to wait. I'm going to prepare a place for you, but I'm coming back for you. Jude says, waiting. Okay, we build ourselves up, we pray, we keep ourselves in word, but what motivates us? Tiptoe expectancy. We're waiting, we're anticipating the return of Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. He said, I'm coming back for you, and where I am, you will be with me forever. I know we don't get excited about this kind of truth in this class, but that's one of those things that just energizes us because that's what he promised. And Jude says, bank on it. He goes back, if the doctrine of the resurrection isn't true, why in the world do you believe he's going to come back for you then? I mean, why would he do that? He's dead. (laughs) He's in a grave somewhere in Judea, which is what he's... Anyway. This is all in verse 21. I'm sorry? This... uh... Oh, you're talking about it. We're still on verse 21. I, yes, I haven't gotten into verse 22 yet. Yes. Right. That's amazing. You get to run out of the verse. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. Amen. But it just it's it that's why this is I love this little epistle. It's just loaded. Every verse is loaded with stuff. So all right. Um it's almost time to quit. But am, am, am I losing you or are you are you following the trail that Jude is kind of leading us through here? Leading is that the right way I want to say it? He's taking us through this. It's just it's it's an amazing little book. I just am I love this little book and I'm so glad you wanted to study it with me. Although really you didn't have a choice. <laughs> I don't remember the book on that one, guys. Jim, I, I am noticing a trend here. It seems like every time we go through a book in the Bible. It becomes my favorite book. Oh, good. 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 That's great. Tomorrow, what we want to do is, I'll start with verse 22. But because that's true, have mercy on those who doubt. Because God has shown you mercy, have mercy on those who doubt. That's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Have mercy on those who doubt. How is she going to bring you in? That's it. Yeah. You know, I, I studied under a man who introduced me to a book that was, for me, it was a life changing book um, written by Os Guinness. But uh, it's a book on doubt. And what Guinness does is he helps, he helped me, and I think correctly, doubt is a positive thing. Because your doubts can get resolved in the truth in Scripture. So that, that, that is something that scares us. You know, when we're raising our kids, doubts scare us because we don't want our kids to doubt. But they come to us with their doubts and questions and so on, and they get them, I'm sorry, they get them resolved. Um, they get them resolved in 
in, in answers to your, their questions and you help nurture them and bring them along and so on. But it's, it's, it's a wonderful term that can be positive. Show mercy on those who doubt. You do it with your children. So people in the church, I mean, that's one of the things I see as a pastor. I mean, con- constant questions. Our church, we have a little Ask Dr. Ekman. And it's, I mean, every week I get two or three questions from people in the church. And they're good questions. Most of them I can't respond in just a sentence. You know, it takes a little while. So anyway... We'll, we'll pick up with this on verse, uh, verse 22 and 23 next week, and I promise you we will finish this book. One of, the, one of the greatest benedictions in Scripture ends this book. What, what's that? Are you sure? Well, the divine appointments of the Lord, maybe he has another, but I think we will. So if you have you've downloaded the First Peter stuff yet or the notes in First Second Peter, Great. If you have, you might want to do that for next week because I'm pretty sure we'll get into the introduction. So, so I hope this has been a good, it's a great passage. It's a wonderful passage to study, and I'm glad we got through it today. Let me pray. Dear Lord, thank you for um, a comfortable room in which to have our class on such a hot, humid day today. Thank you for these men and their willingness to take an hour out of their very busy schedules and uh, come to a class like this. I trust it's been a blessing to them. Uh, Jude is saying things that are incredibly relevant to us in 2017. And certainly one of the major takeaways is uh, the greatest way to deal with error and false teaching is to know what truth is. And Jude says, build yourself up in the faith. His thesis is contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. There is such a thing as truth, and we can know that truth. It's revealed in your word, and we, we want to know it, and we want to allow your spirit to bore it deep into our hearts so that we are transformed and become more and more like Jesus, which is our goal. So thank you for each man. Thank you for their lives. Enable them and help them in all of the many areas of their lives, the struggles, the difficulties, uh, maybe issues in their families, whatever they might be. Give them grace. Give them enablement, give them strength, give them wisdom, give them direction. And in each one we trust to the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. See you next week.